outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 192. And today in the show, we are joined by the CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Land Tawny. And we're discussing the recent controversy around national monuments from a hunter-angler perspective and other public land issues and news. All right, folks, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today we are going to be joined by Land Tawny. And Land is the CEO of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, the leading conservation organization fighting on behalf of sportsmen and women for our public lands, wildlife, and waters. And we had Land on the show, it might have been like two years ago now, but I wanted to have him on again to discuss a topic that has been all over the news over the past week or so, and that is this National Monument Controversy. Uh, As you might have heard or seen last week, President Trump announced that his, his, (laughs) I cannot talk, his administration We'll be making drastic cuts uh, to protections on a couple of different pieces of our public lands. Notably, he proposed a reduction in size of Bears Ears National Monument by 85% and cutting Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in half. So there's been a lot of talk about what this means, uh, what kind of precedent this sets, and concerns um, for, you know, all sorts of different concerns for those of us who value public lands and wild places. So you might have seen something related to this on your Facebook feed or on the nightly news, but you know there's also a decent bit of confusion and maybe even some misinformation coming from both sides of the issue too. So with all that hubbub out there, uh, I think it's probably pretty easy for a hunter or angler to be a little confused about what all this means, uh, what we should be thinking and doing about all this. So with that all being the case, Land is going to hop on here soon with us to help us understand you know, what national monuments are. Uh, what this recent announcement means for the future of public lands, how this is going to impact hunters and anglers, sportsmen and women, 
And then finally, you know, we're also talking a little bit more about other public land changes and challenges and issues that have been kind of rolling out over recent months and, uh, you know, what we need to know as hunters and anglers about all that. So, so please, please, please stick around for this one uh, because honestly, I really do believe that the future of our ability to hunt and fish and hike and camp and kayak and raft and whatever, explore these wild public places that future is dependent on us, sportsmen and women, understanding these issues and standing up for these places. Uh, because as Theodore Roosevelt once said, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but he said, the wild creatures cannot speak for themselves, so we must and we will. And I think that is very much still true today. So so that's the main event for the episode here. But uh, before we get to that, as we do every week, we're going to take maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes. We'll see how it goes for our weekly pregame show, catching up on the latest in the hunting adventures of myself and the one and only extraordinary. <laughs> I don't have a really great intro for you today, Dan, but you're extraordinary. I'll give you that. <laughs> one of a kind, right? One of a kind. Uh, so am I right on all that, Dan? This is important stuff to talk about, but we first need to give our, our updates. Yeah. Yeah, dude. I tell you what, I, I'm, I am so consumed at the same time, confused on what the actual truth is about a lot of these public land scenarios. You know, it's like you have one side of the one side saying this is the, this is horrible for sportsmen. They're taking away all of our public land. They're going to sell it to the oil, you know, the oil gods or whatever. And then you got the other who say. Yeah, you know, give it away. We don't want the we don't want it to be run by the Fed anymore, and, and all this stuff. And like you said, it's just, it's it's difficult, especially in today when, and where people decide to get their news, what yeah. the actual truth is, and the details about where this information is coming from. So yeah, very very true. Um, and I think you know the, if you're coming into this, if someone listening to this hasn't heard some of our past episodes related to some of these public land issues like the public land transfer which is a, which is a kind of a movement that has been <clears throat> going on for a handful of years now there's a couple episodes that I'll definitely recommend you go back and listen to like one we had with Randy Newberg um, a couple Septembers ago there's one we had with uh, Whit Fosberg which would be a good one to listen to um, so th there's some kind of foundation setting we do in those where we talk about some of these high-level issues related to the future of public lands, why some people want to open them up to development or give them away to states or sell them off, et cetera, et cetera. Um, right from the get-go, I'll tell you, and Dan, you obviously know that, and anyone who's been listening knows that uh, I am a strong opponent of those types of ideas. I, in both you and I, Dan, we value our public landscapes so much. Um, right. So I think this this issue is is near and dear to my heart. And to your to your question and your point, um, here in a few minutes when Land gets on with us, and this this interview I already recorded, so I know what he says. I know what we talk about, and um, he does a great job of helping us understand exactly what's happening, uh, what is real, what is noise, what really matters, um, why these things are are things that we as hunters and anglers should be paying attention to. Um, whether you live on the East Coast, the West Coast, the Midwest, the Rocky Mountains, uh, Florida, wherever, you know these places matter. Um, they are available to each and every one of us. Whether we're going to use them this year or twenty years from now, um, you know I think it's important that we stand up because, for essentially the the entire history 
of America's public lands. It has been hunters and anglers that have been the main people standing up, fighting for this place, helping getting these places created, funded, taken care of. Um, it, it's been on us since the beginning, and it still is on us here today. Um, and, you know, I think you and I can both point to some very special moments in our own lives that took place on these types yeah. of landscapes and locations. And uh, with you having kids and, and me having my first on the way, it, it just becomes even more important and even right. more just, I don't know. I just want to make sure that these opportunities are available for, for my little guy. And yeah, it's crazy. This is what the way I look at a situation like this is just maybe I don't get to go out and experience these places because Iowa is 98 point something percent. It's like less than 2% uh, state slash public ground, right? or let's say state or federal ground, quote uh-huh. unquote, pub, public, right? Yep. You go out West, there's a lot more opportunity for that. But what I, what concerns me is like, I have hope that I can go out and do that, you know, someday do that. And I want my kids to be able to have the hope to say, you know, if I wanted to, I could go, I could go out there and climb this mountain. And without that, it just seems like a sad, like a world that is just all, you know, and I know, I know what I'm saying is the, the worst case scenario. Like you go and you drive out into the mountains and you're standing on these roads and you imagine these, you know, these picturesque vistas. And then all you see is like oil wells and mines and, you know, the the mountains are still there, but they're covered up. The animals aren't there anymore because they've been driven out. And it just, it just seems like a sad world from that point on. I hundred percent agree with you. And it's just every year, these places are getting chipped away at, chipped away at, chipped away at. And, um, of course, you know, progress is progress development and, and, and businesses and all these things that got to happen, right? That's obviously, part of our own existences is, is having these things, but there's got to be a responsible way to do these things. There's got to be a way to still respect and take care of the handful of places that we have left that are still somewhat pristine and wild and public. Yeah. I mean, it's such a small proportion of what's going on. Why can't we just hold on to these last few places? Because you're right. They do offer that opportunity, that dream, that hope for anyone that there's still somewhere you can get away to. Um, and man, you, you spend a day or two out in some of these wild places and, um, it is, it is uh, medicine for the soul, I think. Right. Um, absolutely. And, uh, absolutely. a writer, Wallace Stegner once talked of these public lands, these places out, you know, he was specifically talking about some of these places, um, that are wilderness areas being the, the geography of hope. Um, and I think that's a pretty powerful way to describe these places. So yeah, I don't know, absolutely. man. I uh, I had a, a very fortunate year to be able to explore a lot, a lot of these places myself over, you know, the spring and summer and fall, and uh, it just continues to drive home all these things. We got to stand up for them. So, so I know you're I know you're working on a a quote unquote public land project. Yeah. It, can you give us any insight on what that's going to be? What do you? I mean, can you can you give <laughs> us a sneak peek, or am I am I blowing the cover for you? <laughs> I can't give you too much more information, but I can okay. say that the project will be announced in the relatively near-term future. 
Okay. So finally, this thing that I've been kind of referring to loosely and every once in a while over the last year or so, um, it's it's happening. It's very exciting. Um, I'm pumped about it. I've spent a lot of time on it over the last year. Going to be spending a whole lot more time on it this coming year. Um, but it's kind of um, knock on wood. It's going to be the uh, the realization of, of of a dream I've had for a long time. So excited about that. It is related to public lands. It's related to a lot of things we're talking about here. Um, and I hope people are going to enjoy it. Yeah. So that that's yeah, all I can share right now. <laughs> I tell you what. This is a what I what I'm about to tell you is real and I really do do this. I sit in my cubicle and I daydream while I'm doing my work about getting out and heading west and and I you know at, at night after the kids go to bed I I'll sit with an iPad on my lap and I'll just look at Google Maps and as pictures pop up <laughs> yeah. I'll click on the pictures and I'll go and I'll I even have a document somewhere it's in my messy desk somewhere. But anyway, it's just like, okay, well, that looks cool. I'm going to go visit that. And it's just a list. Yeah. And, you know, maybe someday I'll get to do that. Maybe I won't. But it's a dream. And it's just something that has been in my blood since my dad took me on an Amtrak train from Iowa to Denver, Colorado. And then we rented a car and we went up into uh, Rocky Mountain National Park. Uh, and then we went uh, some other places around the area. And, and then I went back to Colorado maybe one or two more times between now and then. But every time I go out there, it it makes – the West to me makes you feel so small that – I don't know. It makes – like where I'm at in my job and I know some of the guys out in the East Coast. and I, Hell, I live, live in Iowa and that's not even a highly populated. But I live in a, in a, a highly dense – you know, a, a dense area of Iowa. And I think like when you walk out there and you become like it's just like through osmosis where you become less like you're you you feel smaller and I really don't know how to put it into words, but I feel smaller and I like that feeling. Yeah. I like that the surroundings I don't know, it's like my surroundings are bigger. And it just it gives me like a cleansing feeling. I don't know what it is, and I know we're getting way off topic here, but no, oh well. no, I 100% know what you're talking about there, and feel it myself, and agree. It's it's important, and you know, it's important to point out, even though I'm personally a sucker for the West, and and yeah. really really love it. There are big, still pretty wild public places in the East and in the South, and uh, those things are, are to be celebrated too, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so real quick, I don't want to go too long here because I want to make sure that we uh, we don't scare people away before we get land on. <laughs> right, right. But um, do you have any public land adventures that you're planning for this coming year? Do you have anything on the dream list? Or Yeah, man, definitely. And it, it, a lot of it just depends on time and money, you know, just like everything in life. I'm, I'm, I want to get out to do an elk hunt in Colorado yep. and then – I want to throw in a a secondary hunt out of state, maybe for whitetail. Um, I don't know if that would necessarily be a public land hunt or not. I know the elk hunt will be a public land hunt. That's going to take priority, and that might even take priority over whitetails in Iowa this year. Like if I have to sacrifice time during the rut for whitetails to go elk hunting, I think I'll probably do it this year. Yeah. Uh, just because 
past, you know, since we went on that trip, like two years, three years ago now, it's, it's, I don't, I can't explain it again. I just think about it every day. And even though it sucked at times, it was, <laughs> it was still better than sitting in a cubicle. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. it, it's just, I need more adventure. I had a guy talking to me about this the other day. He He's a dad and he's got a, he's got a marriage and there's times when he's, he started talking to me and I don't know anything about women. I'm married and I have a daughter. I don't know anything about them. Uh, <laughs> but, but like for men, and I think it's something in their DNA that they need that they need to step away from their family for a little bit. It makes them better when they return. They need to be outside in nature and they need to be like, they need to rough it. And I think it just gets, what that does is it kind of gets you back to your core being because in a way you still are an animal right. and, and it lets you, you know, expose that side of yourself. And then when you come back to your family, you're just a better husband, you're a better father. And, uh, I tell you what, I feel like, I feel that after even going on like a, a week rut hunt here in Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. You got to get back to that. I mean, you know, if you look at the, um, if you look at the story of like the, of, of human of humanity, you know, it's been just a very tiny, tiny little bit of time that we've actually not been living out in the wild, hunting, gathering, living off the wild, doing these types of very um, difficult physical things just to survive. I mean, if the if the history of humanity is a book, it's only like the last paragraph of the last page that is, you know, working in cubicles and sitting in an yeah. office or even in a factory or anything like that. Um, so we, the, the human body and psyche has evolved and still to this day has not changed from the body and psyche that was needed to survive on the plains of Africa. So that yeah. is what we are meant to do. Uh, but instead we're sitting at computers tapping away while like some inner part of us is, is rotting away. That's exactly how I feel. Dude, I feel like there is an incredible Hulk inside of me every day that is just like, just waiting to like climb on top of a mountain and just beat my chest and yell. <laughs> and I can't do that. Like it just, I don't know. I anyway, you, man, I hear uh, you. I know it's early, but are you got any public land adventures? So, so yeah, for sure. Um, it's going to be a little bit more moderate of a schedule than I've had the past few years, just because, you know, we, we got the little one due in February. Yep. And so we're, we're not a hundred percent sure how that's going to impact, you know, what we're able to do. Um, we're still planning on doing a lot of stuff and taking them along with us, but, uh, we're kind of going to play it by ear and just kind of see how we're feeling about things, how, you know, we can adjust. But, uh, but I do know I'm going to be doing a, um, a backpacking trip, um, at pictured rocks, national lakeshore. Okay. In the UP of Michigan, I'm going to be doing a backpacking and peak bagging trip in Colorado and Nevada sometime in the summer with a buddy of what's me. A, what's a peak? Yeah, so uh, like... Uh, a peak packing trip. Yeah, so peak bagging is basically just like a term for climbing to the top of a mountain that doesn't require like technical climbing skills and ropes. Are you going to do a 14er? Yeah, yeah, some that, that kind you of stuff. You son of a gun, because that is literally on my bucket list, like... <laughs> If if I could step away from my job today 
and even take my family with me or whatever this, you know, this is a pipe dream. My goal in life is to climb every 14er in Colorado. Oof, that's like 43 of them or something. 54. 54. All right, there you go. I like that though. Yeah. You got to get your wife to move to Colorado then maybe. <laughs> I know. I got a crazy story we can share another time about my first attempt at a 14er. Oh, yeah. Got caught in some weather. It was nasty. Uh-oh. We'll definitely have to cover that one at some point. But uh, but yeah, man, that would be a pretty awesome thing to do. And so I think we're going to try to tackle a couple of them while we're out there. Um, I'm thinking like three, four days in Colorado and then drive across to Nevada and do a backpacking trip probably up in the Ruby Mountains, I think. Um, nice. And those will be part of this project that I keep on referring to as well. Um, and then definitely want to try to do some Western hunts. I just don't know exactly how much time, if it'll be a week or if I can get away with two weeks. I don't know. Um, and then we're going to go, my wife and I and, and the boy are going to get out there for at least two, two to four weeks, maybe during the summer. And, nice. uh, maybe this year they'll might not do the camper. Maybe we'll rent a house or something or a little cabin. Right. Um, right probably Montana and do some fishing and hiking and stuff, you know, in the national forests and parks and stuff around there. So tentatively something like that, but, uh, who knows what it might look like six, seven months from now when I've got a, a five month old kid, (laughs) (laughs) but we just bought him a nice little new, uh, down winter jacket and getting his outerwear already. So he's going to be, I got a, our baby shower was just this past weekend. Nice. And my sister bought me like a really, really nice like Osprey backpack child carrier. Oh yeah, um, I got one of those. Yep. So we can do our, our our hiking and backpacking trip still, but just tote him along in the back. Uh, so I'm just getting really excited about that. I can't wait to share these places and these types of things with uh, with my son here, and uh, just really, really excited about that. So, and I think that I think that you know, like like I mentioned at the beginning, just hammers home how important our topic is again today. Um, it's not just about you and me. It's about our kids, our kids, kids. It's about, you know, those future generations. So what do you say we, uh, wrap this up and hop over to our interview with land? Sounds good. All right. Let's take a quick break for a word from our partners at Sitka gear. And then we will talk national monuments and public lands with land Tawny. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Bryce Lamley a Sitka whitetail ambassador who tells us about an improbable hunt with his longbow at ground level in a Nebraska cornfield. Well, it was October of 2007, my first year wearing Sitka gear, and I was having a hard time finding the deer. And the place I, ne- I usually go then is into the cornfield, and it's an irrigated cornfield, so it's really it's a jungle in there, but there's a lane to the center pivot, and I climbed the center pivot, and about sunset, really nice buck walked out along the along the pivot lane and there's some uh, grassy area in there i figured i didn't have anything to lose so i went into the corn and tiptoed down the corn rows to the center pivot track that i thought would bring me out within range of the buck it was pretty crunchy in there and i decided that i had nothing to lose i was positive by now the deer had heard heard me and so i began pulling on ears of corn and and making noise on purpose including a little bit of grunting hoping that the deer would think it was just another deer as i reached the second pivot track i began going back uh, toward the lane where i thought the deer might be out in the in the open and it turned out the deer was right in in the pivot track almost with me and i got within five yards and all of a sudden he 
was there and I realized that, that uh, I was not going to probably get a shot. We had kind of a face off and the buck bounded back out into the, into the open, but he wasn't completely spooked. And I was able to tiptoe a few rows closer to the edge. And sure enough, he was standing there. And as it turned out about 12 yards away, and I was able to get an arrow through the, between the corn stalks and with my longbow, and I whacked him pretty good. And he ran across the opening into the corn on the other side where I could visually track his progress until I heard a big thud and kind of an improbable hunt. And one of my most exciting ones well, certainly wasn't one of my biggest deer, but absolutely one of the most exciting encounters I've had. On Bryce's hunt, which took place in Eastern Nebraska, he was wearing Sitka's original mountain pants and vest. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own, or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit sitkagear.com. All right, with me now is Land Tawny. Welcome to the show, Land. Mark, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. And um, had a great time chatting with you. Maybe it was a year and a half or so ago on the podcast, and we, we took that opportunity to kind of get to know you and backcountry hunters and anglers. And since that foundation was already set um, on the podcast, I will send people that aren't familiar with you back to listen to that one um, so that we can get right into some kind of current hot topics uh, that are going on right now. And that's related to national monuments. Um, So Land, I know that you've got a lot of experience and, and understanding of of what all this means, what's happening today in current events and in the news, I think a lot of hunters and anglers over the last week or so have seen talk of national monuments and what's going on over in Utah with Bears Ears and uh, Grand Staircase Escalante. Um, so I was hoping we could talk about that. And yeah, at a high level, can you maybe kick things off for us by helping us understand, you know, what what is a national monument? And uh, maybe you talk about the history of that too, how they came to be, what you know, what that has meant in the history of public lands. For sure. So, you know, I think that like you go back to Theodore Roosevelt, and you know, when Roosevelt was in the presidency, it's kind of when our conservation ethic, I really, I think, became really part of the fabric of America, and, and you know, and as that's carried through today, we're kind of the envy of the world, and. One of the tools in the toolbox, you know, that he signed into law in 1906 was the Antiquities Act. The Antiquities Act gives the president the ability to set aside lands for cultural reasons um, as well as scientific. And so, you know, he started, and I I also step back, is that, you know, prior to him signing that bill into law, the Boone and Crockett Club, which came on in 1887, you know, they were looking and trying to figure out, you know, different tools in the toolbox for the president to help like conserve some of the best of the best. And so, you know, they helped write the law. President signed it into law in 1906. And then, um, you know, he starts to designate these monuments and really what these monuments, you know, it doesn't really stop a lot of existing uses. And so where that's grazing, hunting, fishing, all that stuff is allowed. What it does preclude is, uh, is extractive kind of industry. So oil and gas, um, and let's say coal. And, and so, you know, this, this act has been used by 16 presidents, that's eight Democrats and eight Republicans. Uh, it stood the test of time, you know, to where, you know, these are very special places and it hasn't been you know, used that much, uh, but it's been done to, you know, protect places. I think the other thing that this is not just 
it's not just an it's not a a law that really has been you know it's, it's just like the president one day wakes up and is like oh i like that area and i'm going to go designate this place as a national monument and there's a lot of conversations with people on the ground um one of the ones that roosevelt did was mount olympus in washington which he did strictly to protect elk um and you know those elk ended up being named roosevelt elk <laughs> by the guy who uh, was the tax, they did the taxonomy there. But um, that was after talking to a bunch of local people. And um, at that point, they were under threat of kind of some timber harvest, um, like unfettered like timber harvest, and that's why they designated the monument. So um, it's something that, you know, again, I mean, it's, these aren't, there's not, you know, the, the review that was undertaken by the president this year, um, it encompassed 11 million acres, which... That was 27 monuments, um, and when you think about 11 million acres in the actual whole of what we have as our public lands, you know, we have 640 million acres. And so that 11 million acres is a real kind of small chunk of that and really the best of the best. You know, I'll, I'll take the, the Upper Missouri Breaks National Monument that's here in Montana. Um, you know, it, it, it was designated by um, President Clinton, and it, and it wasn't done, you know, in total, no, no controversy. There was definitely controversy there. Um, but now it's like one of the best places to hunt elk, bighorn, sheep, and mule deer in the entire world. And it's a coveted, coveted place to hunt. And so, you know, this Antiquities Act is something, again, that's like stood the test of time until recently, um, the recent actions of this have happened this last year. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting when you look back in history to, to the actions of, of Teddy Roosevelt, you know, even then when he signed this into law soon after began creating national monuments of his own, it was not without controversy either, right? There were people back then who weren't happy with him doing these things. Um, but for example, like you mentioned Mount Olympus, um, now I think that eventually was evolved into Olympic national park. Um, or right. uh, the Grand Canyon at the time was very controversial when he uh, proclaimed that a national monument. Now, of course, I don't think there's anyone in the world who who thinks it's a bad idea that we protected that area. Um, that said, there still were those um, with different incentives um, or different motivations, excuse me, who, who didn't want that to happen. Now, moving forward, looking down the line now, um, from a hunter perspective, um, you know, how have national monuments fit into, you know, hunter access, um, hunter opportunity? Because a lot of people like to say, oh, national monuments, they, they put all these new restrictions. You can't hunt. You can't gain access. You can't do all these things. I'm hearing this in the news right now from certain certain people and parties. Um, and I'm, sure. as I understand it, I'm, I'm thinking ah, that's largely false. Um, can you can you clarify that for me? Yeah. You know, the 27 national monuments that were under review, like all the ones that you could hunt on prior to uh, designation, you can you could hunt on after designation. So none of that changed. Um, the I think the the again the big thing that changes is is that that you cannot do oil and gas extraction, coal, uranium, like other kind of large kind of um, restraction or extraction kind of activities. And so the hunting um, and fishing opportunities that were there before, you still have them today. Um, and, and so that was not changed at all. Now I will tell you, um, that there's a national monument it's called Castle Mountains and it's, uh, it's in California. It was not one of the monuments that was under review because it didn't fit like the, the size requirement. Um, but that's a case where a new manager came in and the manager was like, I don't think that, that hunting is a, you know, is a, is a necessary use here. And, and so 
they stopped hunting on that national monument. Now, is that something that we were disappointed in? Absolutely. And that's something that we're working to rectify both with Secretary of Interior Zinke and then also a local congressman in California. Okay. So that did happen. Uh, I think one of the things that, you know, we put together a report um, uh, that people can go look at online, and it's, it's really about kind of like the history of national monuments and then the way that, you know, that some of the greatest hunting opportunities in this country that are on national monuments and then how we like to see them going forward. And one of the ways to exclude what just happened at, or that happened at Castle Mountains is to really be, have hunting part of that proclamation from the beginning. So that no matter what, it's, it's designated as a use that wants to be carried forward. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to tell you like that every single national monument everywhere in the United States is like the best thing since sliced bread. Um, but the ones that were under review, you could hunt before um, this whole review or before that they were designated. And now, to be quite frank, you know, like you can hunt afterwards. Um, nothing has really changed there. What has changed, again, is kind of this, this opportunities for extraction. And I'll take Staircase Escalante in particular. You know, desert bighorn sheep are not doing great. You know, their populations um, are on the rise in some parts of the country, but in others, you know, they're dwindling. And the Staircase Escalante happens to have some of the best habitat for desert uh, bighorn sheep. Well, with that, with this change in management, which is happening with you know, the, the decision that the president made on Monday, is now, you know, that coal reserve, which is smack dab in the middle of some of the best bighorn she- or desert bighorn sheep habitat, is now like there's an opportunity to extract that. And, you know, those bighorn sheep can't speak for themselves, right? Um, and my guess is they don't want coal in their bedroom. But, uh, you know, like that's that's why one of the reasons why we're very disappointed with that uh, with that designation. Yeah. So, so change designation, I guess. Let, let's speak about that a little bit more, um, because because two things, two myths I want to kind of make sure that we clarify. And these are kind of coming from both sides a little bit. Uh, you hear those in favor of either uh, changing the size of the monuments or trying to rescind them entirely. That kind of camp there likes to say that national monuments are a, a land grab by the federal government. Now, I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's pretty inaccurate as anything that can become a national monument, any national monument was federal public land already. They're not taking private land. They're not taking state land. They're simply saying, okay, this is federal public land already. We're going to proclaim it a national monument, which gives it some additional protections. Now, on the flip side, after what happened here this week um, where the the talk of, of, of uh, downsizing the monuments. There's some who are, are upset about that, but they're saying the president's stealing your land. Now, as right. much as I appreciate the sentiment of wanting to keep our public land public, that is kind of, that's, uh, you're, you're playing loose with the facts a little bit there because even in this case, right, we are not eliminating public land. We're not selling public land. It's just reducing protections on public land. Is that, am I right in that assessment? Mark, you're a student. And you're getting through kind of the rhetoric on both sides, right? I think that um, it wasn't a, you know, like you said before, it wasn't a land grab. This was just another level of protection. Um, And again, you know, all the places we could hunt and fish before um, those designations on the 27, you know, they were under review. We could could hunt and fish after the monuments were designated. And then we're not, these are not being sold. And I think, you know, I think that there are some people that want to take advantage of the kind of, 
the growing awareness and kind of the ire, you know, that happened around, you know, let's say Chaffetz um, back in, in Feb- back in March when he tried to sell 3 million acres like that. The, the, I guess action was swift and it was uh, unapologetic. And I think people are trying to like cash in on that um, in this instance, this is not about selling public lands. It's more about like a sellout to industry um, and reducing those protections. And so, you know, is that going to happen again? I think something to be careful there too is, you know, is that coal that I talked about um, in uh, in Escalante is that going to be developed tomorrow? It's not going to be developed tomorrow, but it's definitely a threat and it's a threat to that habitat, and that's why it was set aside in the first place. Um, when I think about all the oil and gas that's you know at Bears Ears, um, you know, if oil stays at fifty dollars a barrel, that, that's not going to ever be developed. You know, if oil goes back up there's definitely going to be a threat there. So um, this is not about a sell-off of public lands at all. And I think I think that hurts credibility, to be totally honest, Mark. Yeah. Um, because, you know, that, that wolf is the, that, that wolf is crying and or your people are crying wolf. And I, I just, like, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, besides the point that they're trying to capitalize on some of the anger that people have already expressed. But uh, I think it's disingenuous. Yeah, I felt the same way. And I felt like you're, you're losing credibility when you, when you start skewing things in that way like there's already enough here to um to say hey this is an issue let's talk about it i think there's already enough factually that you can point to this being something that's concerning you don't need to exaggerate it even more and then just lose your ability to to be on the right side of the facts um so that was disappointing to see but but i guess you know to your earlier point, it is also disappointing that these protections are being taken away and that the, the opportunity right. for these places that are very, very special places, not just from a hunting and fishing perspective, not just from a recreation, climbing, hiking, backpacking perspective, but also, um, you know, from a cultural perspective to the to the native tribes there. Um, and I know that's a little bit outside of our wheelhouse of what we usually talk about when it comes to the hunting and angling community, but still something pretty important that... Uh, certainly should be respected um can you can you kind of give us a high level overview though because we kind of jumped right into it we didn't really talk in detail about what actually happened what why was this review started what were the final decisions what was announced this uh week uh what does it mean right so you know the president asked secretary zinke early last year you know to review um you know what had like these national monuments that have been designated over the last, God, I think they went back 25 years, um, and just to see, you know, how they were designated and to see if, you know, if they, if, if it made sense. Um, and so, you know, the the secretary went through this review process and went out and visited, I think, you know, half a dozen or, so, or about a dozen or so uh, monuments, um, and 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 then, you know gave kind of, uh, I guess at the same time, there was a public comment period. And this public comment period generated over a million comments. Um, those comments have been analyzed, um, and about 98% of them were for keeping, you know, these monuments the way they are. Um, was that an organized effort? Absolutely, because people saw the threat of those protections being taken away. Um, but it's overwhelmingly when it's 98% to two. Um, and so then there was a, a leaked memo uh, that came out this summer. It was from the secretary uh, up to the president that uh, gave some indication on which ones uh, that they were looking at. Um, Staircase Escalante uh, and Bears Ears were kind of at the top of those lists. And so then you get to, you know, there's a bunch of time has passed since then. You didn't really know if it was 
the actual final report because it was a leaked document um, and and you know there was some discrepancies in there um, that weren't factual. But then you get to what happened this Monday, and that's really the president went down to Utah, and you know the reductions of uh, and and proposed major. I mean, these aren't little teeny like you know like uh, redrawing of kind of lines. These are major, major reductions, um, and and so that's where we are now. Now um, there's lawsuits that are being filed, and you know I think we've looked into the legal side of this a lot. We're not going to file a lawsuit ourselves. But, you know, the, I think we think the president's action was illegal. Again, these aren't little boundary restrict, you know, boundary kind of um, adjustments. These are major, major rollbacks. And so now we're going to be caught up in court, which, you know, is unfortunate, but it also provides a backstop. At the same time, you know, you've got legislation that's proposed by Congressman Bishop out of Utah uh, to totally change the way the, the Antiquities Act works. Um, and only do it for cultural reasons and take the scientific piece out of that. And so when you think about places like the Upper Missouri Breaks here in Montana, like it's got some cultural resources, but the majority of that is, you know, because it's just a special uh, place that really isn't duplicated anywhere else. And so for scientific reasons, keeping it that way and, you know, and protecting the wildlife resources that are there. So I think, you know, there's, there's, there's some unknowns now on what's going to happen, Mark. Um, you know, I think that, it is kind of a sad day, the largest, you know, protection rollback that's ever happened in this country, whether that's monuments or anything else. Um, and so that's just a bad precedence to be setting. I think, you know, the, the worry that we have is that, you know, I talked earlier, is that so far this this law and the monument designations have really stood the test of time. And now that, you know, this has happened, you know, they, like, what what happens to the rest of the monuments that are out there and, and how safe are they? They become a political football. It gets passed and forth between administration to administration to administration, which causes a lot of um, ambiguity and, and causes, um, I think, a lot of unknowns that, you know, is that what's going to happen? And, you know, that, that quite possibly could happen. And that's why we threw this whole thing. You know, we kind of, we use the mantra, like, the, you know, attack on one is attack on them all because you're really going after the sanctity that has been the Antiquities Act, you know, till date. Yeah. So um, there's a lot, I mean, there's not, my crystal ball, you know, it's kind of hard to say what's going to happen. I mean, I think this is something that will go all the way up to the Supreme Court. um, And how long that takes, who knows, and then we'll see, you know, what's happening at a legislative level. Um, I will tell you that I don't think this is something that the president came up with. I definitely don't think it's something that Secretary Zinke came up with. I think this is pressure that's coming out of Utah, um, where you know we like a lot of this kind of anti-public land rhetoric comes out of, and whether that's you know the sale of public lands or the change in management, it's really being driven out of Utah, and it's unfortunate, but it's also a place that there really isn't you know a lot of uh, sportsman engagement in Utah, and I think about. You know, that's a you know we're growing a chapter there, but it's it's uh, I think part of the reason that, that, that these these policies are coming out of there and this angst is coming out of there is just because there isn't really a good organized uh, sportsman's base in Utah. Is there some is there some political back scratching happening here um, that could be why some of these things are happening that the Utah delegation wants, but that seem to be opposed to some of the other things that Secretary Zinke has has said 
are important to him in, in this administration, like public land. I mean, you, we were hearing these things, you know, early on in the, in the administration that they're going to be four sportsmen and and four public lands, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. You know, Teddy Roosevelt, Republican. Um, but some of these, you know, actions more recently seem um, maybe not in line with that. Is this something you know that's getting right into the dirty stuff of politics? Maybe it's causing all this. I think I think that's part of it. I mean, I think you know back to. Roosevelt today. I mean, you talked about how, you know, he wasn't necessarily applauded by every single American for doing these designations, right? There were people that were opposed to him, and the people that were opposed to him were really big industry. And I think if you don't have to look too much farther to simplify kind of what's going on here is that, you know, this is big industry. They've developed a lot of this country, and um, they want to develop more. And, you know, the the lease sales that happen for oil and gas, like on the outside of Bears Ears, just this last year, like that's right on the doorstep and they want to get more. And so, you know, I think things that for us to think about as Americans is that, you know, oil and gas development is important. Uh, but it's like, it's, it's when that's done in the right way. And again, right now this market is flooded with oil, with cheap oil and gas. And so does it make sense for us to, you know, to be developing these places? Um, you know, the, what makes America unique is, you know, some of our protected places where we can hunt and fish protecting cultural resources, you know, you name it, clean air, clean water. And I think, you know, so go these public lands, kind of so goes America. And so I think we really need to look ourselves in the mirror and, and do we want these special places to continue? You know, I mean, I think we haven't talked about other things yet, but, you know, you look at like the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge up in uh, Alaska or Bristol Bay, exactly. up in Alaska or the boundary, you know, the boundary waters up in Minnesota. These are all very, very special places that not only, again, provide, you know, great opportunities to hunt and fish, um, but are also, you know, they provide clean air and clean water. And to me, you know, like that's, that's the precedence that's being set here is that it's kind of development at all costs. And I, I just don't, I don't think that there's any point in our American history that development at all costs has really, you know, been in the best uh, uh, interest of the American people. Yeah. So uh, something for us all to stay vigilant on. Absolutely, I think you. I think you're spot on, and, and of course, to your point, that there's a place for development. Of course, these different things are are important in moderation, in balance, in the right ways, in the right places. And, and there are some places that that it's not right to have those types of things. And increasingly, I mean, there are fewer and fewer and fewer places left that haven't been developed, bought up, sold right. off, um, whatever it might be. So, man, we just need to to protect or care for and conserve those last few remaining places and resources we have. And um, speaking to, you know, kind of something you mentioned a little earlier, we talked a little bit about um, sure. how this um, recent pr uh, proposed reduction in these national monuments has gotten some people kind of using the same rhetoric that was used when we talked about the public land transfer, the proposed sale that Chavez had earlier in 2017, I guess, um, yep. different things along those lines. Now, that kind of movement, the the idea, at least the, the public idea, you know, people talking about a lot of trying to transfer or sell public lands, to your point, got such a severe blowback from the hunting and fishing community and others in the recreation um, community that I think that, from what I've seen and heard, that's kind of died down a little bit just because they're kind of realizing how politically unpopular that is. But I think from what I'm gathering and seeing, it still seems like that is, is a, is a push, but still maybe a long-term goal, but it's trying to be achieved by death by a thousand cuts. Um, 
Yep. It seems like now they're taking this tact to try to just slowly chip away at protection, slowly chip away at the resources available currently to agencies to manage these places, slowly chip away at things so that they can say five years from now maybe, well, you guys aren't doing a good job of managing your federal, your national force. You're not able to manage your BLM land. Um, the states could do a better job. Um, but, of course, the reason being is that you slash our budgets by 85%. You took away our law enforcement, uh, you know, powers you took you, yep. all these different things um am i right in in this kind of analysis of what's happening mark what i love is that you're doing your research you know and i think that like you're spot on and like ever the student right and i think that's important for everybody that's listening to this is that you know don't don't believe the rhetoric like like look at the facts right and i think i think you're exactly right is that you know i think that the our community in particular, the sportsman's community, has done an awesome job at pushing back. Um, and so that has kind of gone to the back of the line um, where, you know, what part of the, the push to kind of sell slash transfer these public lands has really ultimately been about extraction, you know. And so now as these protections are lifted um, or, as you say, budgets dwindle, um, you know, some of the same things are being accomplished. And so I think it's, you know, up to all of us to stay vigilant on that piece. And, you know, I ultimately, you know, I, I, I'm a glass half full kind of guy, you know, um, and I think that, you know, out of these, these times that sometimes you feel like there's a lot of pressure, um, some great things come from that. You know, we've already talked about kind of, you know, where the Antiquities Act came originally and kind of this conservation ethic that's because this country was in a rough spot. I mean, we're basically coming close to wiping a lot of wildlife, you know, off the off the American landscape. And and hunters, you know, change that. You know, you look at like the dirty thirties when the lid was coming off the prairie when we had the dust bowl, and that's when hunters stepped up and we, you know, we taxed ourselves through Pittman Robertson. Um, we uh, established a duck stamp, you know, so that would go right back into habitat. There's organizations like Ducks Unlimited, the National Wildlife Federation formed then. Um, you look at like the 1960s when, you know, actual rivers were on fire in this country. Um, and that's where we got the Clean Air and Clean Water Act. And and so, you know, as we see what's going on now, what I think is that I hope it does is that really um, ignites kind of this, this sportsman kind of conservation ethic that, that, you know, quite frankly, maybe has been dormant for a little bit. Um, and, and people become complacent a little bit. And so with these threats, I hope that, you know, more people um, step up to the plate and that, uh, and that you know, not only do um, we help stave off some of the, the things that, and the threats that are out there, but that, you know, that we unite and just make this country even better. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And, you know, I've been spending a lot of time over the last year kind of studying the, the history of, of our public lands and the challenges we've faced. And to your point, it, there definitely is this this back and forth that seems to happen, you know, every, every 10, 15 years where we'll have a great success and then you have this blowback. So, you know, like you just said, like there's these issues that happened in the 30s and 40s. We all of a sudden established some new protections. Hunters, fisher, fishermen, others step up. We have some great things like uh, – Oh, geez. Like you mentioned, Pitt, Pitt and Robertson, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but then again, in the 50s and 60s, then you have a kind of a rise up of, you know, more industry, 
uh, more extraction, a little bit of unfettered capitalism that kind of goes maybe a little bit too far. And then again, to your point, 60s and 70s, then there's the environmental kind of movement. And then it goes back the other way in the 80s with the Sagebrush Rebellion. And um, right. the, again, it's it's this interesting yo-yo effect. So I hope you're right that we're now going to see, while there are threats, you know, this is going to be an opportunity for all those that care about these places and these resources to, to again, stand up and kind of slow things down a little bit. Um, but could you elaborate a little bit on some of these different death by a thousand cuts, um, things that are happening? You mentioned what's happening with the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, Bristol Bay. Um, I think I would be interested yep. in hearing about your thoughts on what's going on with the sage grouse uh, conservation initiative yep. that's being rolled back, the BLM management stuff being rolled back. I mean, there's going to be a, a lot of things like that all happening. And it's kind of falling underneath the radar because there's so many things now. But before we have land tackle that one, let's take a quick second to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Brandon Swartzlander, a land specialist out of Illinois. And Brandon is going to be telling us about the importance of getting the next generation involved with land management. You know, that's a great question. I think uh, me personally, I think getting kids involved early, uh, and maybe not just kids, but, but anyone who hasn't experienced the outdoors or, or land. I mean, it's, it's just such an awesome event. I, I honestly got to have to pinch myself sometimes because I get to do this for a living, but you know, when, when I have girls and some of them hunt, some of them don't hunt, but just, just being out, we all shoot, we all shoot bows. Um, and we all experience the outdoors. We shed hunt, we do all those things together. I just think that you can take away so much more by spending time with whether it's your family or friends or whomever in, in the woods or, or, you know, on a piece of land, it's, it's, it's so much better than, than, you know, having a phone stuck in your face or a laptop or whatever. Uh, I just think it gives us an opportunity to go back to, to what we were raised on. And, and I think, you know, maybe, maybe that's missing to some degree in, in, in society today. But I, I just think when, when you introduce things at an early age, I think I was probably five when I started, um, in the outdoors with my dad, um, but it makes you want to be better and it takes you uh, away from, you know, things that, that can be a negative influence. I just, I feel like it's, it's such a positive thing for, especially with family. I mean, when you can, can do those things with your kids and, and your wife or whatever. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Brandon currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Swartzlander. That's S-W-A- R-T-Z-L-A-N-D-E-R. And now back to my question for land regarding other public land issues and concerns. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think sage grass is, uh, what's going on with sage grass is a perfect example. So step back, try to do it as high level as I can. I don't want to, if you want to ask more questions, please do. But um, so the, you know, like sage grouse, Numbers are going down. Potential for them to be listed as endangered species is real. Uh, with that, you know, if they were designated as endangered species, that comes with all sorts of regulations and has huge implications for ranchers, has huge implications for oil and gas development. And so about a decade ago, uh, people started working together. And, you know, there's oil and gas, ranchers, state agencies, federal agencies, uh, hunter, and, hunter and angler kind of organizations, and you know some other kind of conservation organizations to try to how do we how do we continue the traditions of ranching 
how do we continue to develop oil and gas? And how do we protect this habitat? And so, you know, through that, uh, they came up with a you know, conservation collaborative plan that uh, really helped stave off the listing of that bird and was a path forward for everybody, uh, which included, you know, oil and gas development. And, you know, I think that there's some folks that don't ever want to see any more oil and gas ever taken off of our public lands. And, you know, I think um, they have a right to their opinion, but that's just not reality. So what this did is it really did a couple of things that, you know, did made it so oil and gas will be done in kind of um, a phased kind of approach where instead of having this huge industrial complex, like you're, you're doing uh, oil and gas development and then uh, clean it up kind of as you go. So the impacts on the resource are less. Um, and then it really did a good job of staying out of like focal areas um, for sage grouse uh, habitat. And so, you know, they, they do this thing called lecking in the spring where they get together and they do this little dance for the ladies. And uh, that's kind of their breeding regimen and any kind of disturbance around these areas really, um, it, it makes them so they don't, they don't reproduce as well. And so those areas were left alone. They're called sage grouse core areas. And, and so now, um, this all happened, right? And I think collaboration, you know, there's, there's, uh, when, when you collaborate, you don't get everything that you want, you know, and I guess just the nature of collaboration at the same time, I think that's the way America works, you know, um, is that, that it's a compromise. And, and so it was a path forward that everybody could live with. And now new administration, um, they're rolling back those conservation kind of collaborative collaborative plans. And, and what that does, I think it does a couple of things. I think it has the immediate impact to sage grouse and the sage, you know, step ecosystem that they depend on, which also 340 other species depend on like pronghorn antelope and mule deer in particular, uh, but a host of songbirds and other species that, you know, I feel like are important to have on the landscape. Um, so it, it has that initial impact there. But it's also you know, this idea that you're not supporting this collaborative work that happened over a decade. And so collaboration is not easy. There's a lot of trust that is built there, um, and there's compromise. And those are tough decisions that are made, but they're made. And, and so you know, the, besides what this means to the habitat, like I think it really flies in the face of that kind of collaborative kind of effort. And that has implications, I think, outside of sage-grouse, has you know, implications for other collaborative efforts that are going on all over this country. And um, to me, that's the, those are the two big hits. And, you know, really um, what the administration is talking about is rolling back these plans and then managing strictly uh, for population size and not for habitat. And I think, you know, population size is one indication on how things are doing. But, you know, they've talked about uh, raising pen sage grouse, which has been tried with other grouse species that are very similar and has been highly uh, ineffective. Um, and then, you know, what, what happens when you have, you know, a good population, let's say, of sage grouse in Montana and Wyoming, and uh, we decide that we're just going to sacrifice Idaho and Utah. So um, to me, uh, you know, it's, what's interesting is, is that the pushback has been pretty um, universal, uh, both from uh, Western governors, um, from the Republican Party and from the Democratic Party. And so, um, but they're not being listened to. And I think that's the troubling part about this piece. And so, you know, as I think the real threat here is, is that, you know, yes, you're going to have like the oil and gas folks are going to have some initial years, you know, as this is realized where they get to maybe do things in a more kind of um, wide open arena. 
but what happens if this bird does get listed? You know, I mean, that, that's again where they're going to have, then there'll be major, major regulations on what they can do as well as the ranching community. And so that's the unfortunate side of this thing. And um, to me, it's, again, it's just ignoring kind of what the people want um, and listening to kind of one one entity and that really is the oil and gas uh entity and, and that's that's not what that collaborative effort was about and i don't think that's what america's about yeah speaking speaking of uh some of the issues with some extraction um, industry desires i guess you had touched on the arctic national wildlife refuge and um yeah. i i this past september got to go on a caribou hunt not quite, oh. not quite in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, just south of their okay. little ways. But, uh, but me and Steve, uh, Ranella and Yanni, and that whole crew was up there and just had an unbelievable experience. Uh, and just getting a taste of that type of place, that kind of scale of a landscape, and seeing the, that wildlife, just the immensity of the amount of life there um, in a seemingly untouched, still pristine place uh it was just it was unbelievable and it, it it is good to know that there are still places like that and the arctic national wildlife refuge is one such place that is so renowned and i think it's one of those places that even if you never get to go there just knowing that that is still there it's still available um that at least for me holds a lot of power um and and, and uh and value can you talk a little bit about what's happening there, What, why there are some potential new threats, and it's been an ongoing thing for decades, really, but why now, most recently, maybe there's some concern about the future of, of that area, too? No, that's great. And, uh, by the way, super jealous that you got to go on that hunt. Uh, <laughs> it was I great. Had a, I had an opportunity to go on a hunt in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in August that uh, one of our board members ended up going on. Um, as well as, you know, a film crew to go do a film up there. And uh, it happened to be the same week as uh, my wife's 40th birthday. And so I made the proper decision and stayed <laughs> home. Um, but uh, I'm one. definitely jealous of that opportunity you had. Um, you know, the, like, I think I'd step back first is that part of when the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge was designated, it was designated as a compromise to develop them on the North Slope. And so... You know, here's, you can, oil and gas can be developed on the North Slope, and that's more appropriate there because it's a less sensitive kind of wildlife habitat um, and landscape. And, and and so there was this compromise made that, okay, we're going to kind of, the American people want oil and gas developed, and so we'll have to do that on the North Slope. And they also want protections of, you know, wildlife habitat, like these large landscapes that, as you described, we're not making any more of them, right? Like what we have now is what we have. And so that was that compromise, and it's really, um, you know, it was not done without controversy, but it's it's so far it's carried forward, and it's, you know, it's this amazing place. And so now, um, you know, there's already kind of some testing that's been done on oil and gas potential um, on the coastal kind of region of that refuge. Um, that also happens to be where, you know, the largest caribou herd up there, you know, the porcupine herd, uh, goes right through it. Um, and so it's a very sensitive kind of, uh, area and those concerns. And so there's been some testing just to kind of, you know, check on kind of the, the potential oil and gas deposits there. Um, and then just recently, uh, with the tax, the tax cuts, um, that got passed, um, there was a provision in there that, uh, that basically is, is kind of starting the process, uh, for development up in, up on the, on the national wildlife refuge. So, um, it's not realized yet, but it's definitely paving the way for it. 
And, and so it's, you know, it's, 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 again, it's one of these things and I keep talking about compromise. And the reason I kind of keep bringing it up is because compromise has been, has become this dirty word. It has become this dirty word, I think out in Congress, out in Washington, DC, but it's really kind of been, you know, it's, 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 it's gone away from like the ethos, I think of the American people. And so, you know, you understand for everything's so black and white these days. And, you know, you and I could, go to the, the local tavern and, and, you know, try to figure out what kind of picture we're going to, we're going to buy. And if we're both black and white on that, like we don't drink the same beer, we don't really want to hang out. You know, that's just not the way this world works. I don't think, I think, you know, people make compromise all the time, whether that's with your home life and, you know, your significant other or with your friends or, you know, the way I think that Congress should work. And so this is a compromise that was, that was put in place. And now, you know, the tides are turning the other way. And um, to me, you know, it's again one of these special places that once you start to defile that, it's never ever going to be the same. And while I didn't go on that trip this summer, um, it's a thing that I covet. And just seeing like the footage from that, and then you know, Jar, our board member that went on that hunt, ended up harvesting a caribou, and you know, just to see the landscape that he was in and the reverence that he had coming back from that, I mean, it was a life kind of changing trip. And, you know, maybe I'll never get to go up there, but man, it's going to be something that I dream about for the rest of my life. And just knowing that it's there, um, you know, I think uh, one gives me a little bit of solace that those kind of places are there, but it also gives something me to aspire to as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a lot of, a lot more examples of these types of things happening right now. You know, like we kind of touched on a handful of them, but there's, there's Mm -hmm. more. It's, it's hard to keep track of everything. Um, And sometimes it's hard to know what to do a little bit. And I think sometimes the, 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 the disappointing thing, I think one of the disappointing things coming out of all this is that things like conservation and protecting wildlife habitat in these places, it's become very, very politicized, right? It's become a very yep. partisan thing. And then unfortunately you get these dividing lines, you know, drawn down the middle of groups of people. Um, even though in many cases we believe and, and care about the same things, but when you draw this arbitrary line down the middle and say, well, if you are, you know, if you're blue, you have to be on this side of the, of the issue and that side of the line. And if you're red, you have to be on this side of the issue and that side of the line. And it makes things tough. Um, and, and, you know, for example, think about this, you know, I'm a huge, much to, uh, I know you won't like this, but uh, I'm a huge Michigan State <laughs> Spartan fan, right? So, oh, man. <laughs> I know, you got those U of M roots. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm a huge Michigan State Spartan fan, and I'm part of that team. Um, so when someone on the Spartans, when a player or someone makes a mistake or something, I tend to give them the benefit, the benefit of the doubt. I will tend to say, ah, no, that's fine. Or I tend to not want to talk badly about them. Or I tend not to want to say, no, you made a mistake. You got to do things differently, right? Because that's my team. I want to just, yep. you know, I kind of want to, you become almost an apologist. Um, if your team does something that even if you know it's wrong in the back of your mind, you, you want to kind of sweep it under the rug sometimes. And I, and I worry sometimes that that same kind of thing might be happening in the case of kind of what's happening with our public lands and wild places sometimes. Because when you've got one team out there that's that's kind of cutting away at these places a lot, um, that's something that I think a lot of us can agree is, is not a good idea. But, you know, that team might be doing some other things that we do like a lot. So some folks might want to apologize for that or, or ignore that and, and just focus on the things that are, you know, make them feel okay and comfortable being on that team. Um, right. I think that's a danger, and I think that's a missed opportunity because lots of times um, – 
that Michigan State Spartan that's making a mistake, he probably won't listen to the U of M fan, but they might listen listen to the right. Michigan State fan. The Michigan State fan has that disproportionate opportunity to make a change because you can say, hey, I'm on your team. I want to support you, but you're making some huge mistakes. Listen to your people. Start caring about these things. Now, this is a, a huge you know, <laughs> analogy kind of about what's happening here with our with our public lands and some issues with with some of these ideas coming from the Republican side of, of the of the political um, sphere that you know I think there's a lot of folks in the hunting and fishing world that, that lean to the right side of the of you know right of center that yep. have an opportunity to say hey folks we voted for you but this is not what we voted for this specific type of thing. I mean, where do you stand on all that kind of stuff? I mean, how do we how do we deal with this challenge? How do we make change when um, the politics get all mixed in and messed up with it all? I think that's a super awesome analogy, and I may steal it um, <laughs> uh, going forward. So if you ever hear me about it, like at least I told you I was going to do it. Um, <laughs> that's <fine>. But I, <laughs> that's okay. I guess I could ask permission, but I think it's an awesome analogy, and I think you're totally right. I think that you know, this country is, is run by those who show up. And, and I think that, that when people, uh, you know, I think hold people accountable, I think when they, when they applaud, you know, folks for doing the right thing, I mean, there's a bunch of great stuff that's happening on access right now that I, you know, I think that, um, is very important to applaud folks on, um, from both sides of the aisle. I think that, uh, you know, when, when there's things that are being done that, that kind of benefit of the doubt or, you know, they're on my, I'm on their team and I'm just going to kind of look the other way. That's where we enable that behavior. And, and I think really, I think that when you're on the team, like you said, I think sometimes you have more of an opportunity to influence. And so, you know, I think the, again, going back to Congressman Chaffetz, you know, back this last spring, that's a perfect example of, you know, people from all walks of life, both sides of the aisle, both teams, pushing back and a politician listening, right? Like he pulled back his support of that bill within a week. And so I think it's vitally important for people to uh, step up um, and, and raise kind of their opinions to folks when they disagree. And if you don't do that, um, then, you know, part of me is it's, it's been, you know, like you get what you get, what you get there. And, and, and to me, this country has always been run on those people that show up. And I think people's voices still do count. And I think that they're vitally important right now on an array of issues um, to, to really, you know, talk about. And, you know, I think there's, you know, there's, there's the side of the aisle, you know, that, um, that, that continually, and they're mostly on the, the coast. I think the, you know, the Democrats in the, in the center part of the country have gotten it, but there's still those that, you know, that, want heavy, heavy gun restrictions. That's not an issue that VHA really deals with. But, you know, I think, like, Democrats can be pushing back to Democrats and, like, and pushing back on some of that stuff. And then I would say some of the same things about kind of some of the anti-hunting on that side. Um, Restrictions, you know, for mountain lion hunting in California is a good example. There's more Democrats that would step up and say, that's not good for the resource and that's not good for, you know, kind of carrying conservation forward maybe we wouldn't have gotten that ban there. Um, and so I think that it's important for people to step up and no matter what that issue is um, and provide feedback because ultimately that's what these you know elected officials are elected for is to represent the people. And if you know, you voice your opinion, they, they, that gives them uh, more food for thought on how they will actually get things done. So, um, you know, if I had, had any advice 
to people is your voice does still count. You know, backcountry hunters and anglers, we try to make that as easy as possible, provide you background and then provide you email and, and phone numbers uh, to utilize. And, you know, just an example of that is on this, you know, sage, sage grouse um, kind of conservation plans is that, you know, they had a comment period that lasted, I think, through last Friday. And, you know, we were making it easy for people to engage in that effort. And so um, whether that's us or somebody else, I just encourage people to uh, to really do the research. I mean, you're very educated today and understand kind of the lay of the land, and that's because you've been taking the time to do it. And I think people need to do that, um, and they also need to engage. All right, real quick before we move on, we're going to take our final break of the day for a word from our partners at Matthews Archery. And as we mentioned last week, Matthews recently launched their new Triax bow. So here with us today to talk a little bit more about that bow and the cross-centric cam system that is on that bow is Mark Hayes, a design engineer for Matthews Archery. The cross-centric was born of a concentric cam, which was the no-cam. So we'll start the story in 2015. We built the no-cam HDR, which was the most tunable bow and the most accurate bow we've ever created. Um, It was truly uh, an experience to tune it. It could tune any arrow, whether it was spined correctly or not, or whether the the user had a weird grip or not. It would just tune um, because of those concentric cams. Now, the one thing you could knock on a no-cam was the speed. It did lack. Now, it wasn't slow by any means, but nowadays, how everyone's pushing the envelope on speed, it, it was not up to that bar. So in comes the Halon in 2016, the cross-center cam. Um, it allowed us to have that amazing tunability, incredible accuracy with the speed. The way we did that was the backside of the cam is actually concentric still. So at full draw... And what does that mean? I'm sorry to interrupt, but so, what does concentric actually mean? No problem. So the concentric means that the string track itself is a perfect circle with the center being the axle. And that means that your string will never change the distance from the axle. So you can imagine if you had a big, two big cams on each side at full draw, they could be different distances from the axle if they were slightly out of tune. And that's going to throw a... Uh, vertical knock travel into the path of the the arrow. So with our burger buttons being the center in a concentric uh, string track at full draw, no matter what, whether your timing's on or off slightly, you're always the same distance from the axle. I mean, it's going to be easy to tune and incredibly accurate. If you'd like to learn more about the Matthews Triax or the cross-centric cam system, you can visit MatthewsInc.com. Yeah, and to your point about what what BHA's got going on, um, really a lot of growth when it comes to those local chapters across the country now. You know, we start a chapter in Michigan a couple of years ago that I'm on the board of directors for, and now I think Ohio right. and Texas and a lot of, of places. You know, I, I know you guys originally had that stronghold in the West, and that's now grown across the country. So no matter where you're at, um, you know, these are things that, that can apply to you and, and that do and that I think should matter to Americans all across the the nation and um, you know BHA is a great organization to um, to help you and to help facilitate you know understanding these issues and, and taking action on so so I would definitely encourage anyone listening again I've, I've talked about this a lot but um, it's an organization worth taking a look at and, and getting involved with um, land I want to real quick I know you got I got you got to bounce here quickly but just yeah. back to the the issue we began with the national monument thing just because I know this is one of those things that 
hunters and anglers are getting questions about or they're hearing about and they're just trying to wrap their head around it. Can you again just reiterate, we, we touched on this, but can you just reiterate like the bullet point one, two, three things that from a hunter and angler perspective, we need to understand as far as what the recent announcements mean and what we as hunters and anglers might want to um, push for or advocate for in the coming weeks and months and years as this kind of becomes litigated and um, all those types of things. Yeah, I mean, I think the the first one is, is that, you know, access is being talked about a lot. And, you know, this was not, this was not a federal land grab. This was just a, a increased protection. And so, you know, we can, we could still hunt and fish all the monuments that were under review, um, you know, after they were designated as national monuments. And that, you know, what this really is about is undoing protections. It's not about selling this land. And I think, I know we've talked about that a few times, but I think that's just, it's important to reiterate because there's a lot of that rhetoric out there again, that this is, you know, the president is stealing your land. Well, he's not, he's not stealing your land. He's just taking away protections. Uh, ultimately that would probably be bad for hunting and fishing, but um, you know, we've got, we've got opportunities to still hunt and fish there. Now that these protections have been lifted, it's just like, you know, are we really want to going to want to go there? if the habitat isn't there and that has something to be determined, you know, the lawsuits are going to happen. This will probably be decided by the Supreme court. I'm confident, you know, at least from the research that we've done, that this was an illegal activity and that these places will stay the same. Um, but then you have, I think really, um, you know, legislative proposals that can change the law, which will ultimately decide on how these monuments are designated or potentially roll them back. Um, I think as you look at national monuments, you know, going forward, I would steer people again towards this report we did. It's called National Monuments, a Sportsman's Perspective. It really talks about the history of how national monuments came into play. Uh, it talks about, um, you know, kind of some of the awesome places that you can hunt right now that are designated as national monuments. And it also talks about national monuments going forward and, how, you know, how we would like to see that happen. And I think the big piece is there is that hunters and anglers are involved, you know, from the beginning in these designations and so that their input is heard. I think that the state agencies maintains the management of those fish and wildlife resources that are there and that the federal agencies that currently are engaged um, uh, with those monuments, like the Forest Service or Bureau of Land Management, maintain that kind of level of uh, management afterwards as well. So um, that's kind of like the simple and dirty. Um, stay tuned on that piece. I think the, we'll see what happens with the lawsuits. And then I think the the, the more immediate threat probably – um, is really with the legislative threats, and so just stay tuned on that front as well. Yeah, well, Land, I appreciate you taking the time to walk us through all this. Lots of things happening these days when it comes to public lands, wildlife, and wildlife habitat. And uh, I appreciate what you and and your organization are doing to help keep hunters and anglers abreast of the issues, help us kind of make sense of it all, and then helping us, you know, take action to to protect these wild places and wild animals that we as sportsmen and women that we care so much about. So uh, we appreciate that, Land, and I certainly will keep on doing my best to uh, help the cause too. Mark, uh, appreciate your time today. Always enjoy getting on with you. Um, again, I think you're doing your research, which I totally appreciate. And I think that, you know, through all these times with rhetoric, it's really important to kind of cut through that with uh, information. And I also say the last thing is a huge thank you. You guys are absolutely crushing it in Michigan. I think I saw something uh, this week that you guys have increased membership, uh, you know, like 300% um, this last year. And that's just amazing to me. And that's because of the hard work that you guys are doing. And what I love about this organization is, is that it's real people doing real things. And, you know, that's how this world works and that's how it's going to be carried forward. So 
very much appreciate what you personally are doing in the chapter as well. Well, uh, there's lots to be done and uh, for a very, very important cause. So uh, thank you, Land, and uh, hopefully next time we no can talk, it'll be about sharing or talking about some successes when it comes to some of these things, which, which I'm sure if we keep on working together, we can make happen. Absolutely, man. Big high five across the phone. And with that, we will wrap this episode up. If you'd like to learn more about this issue of national monuments from a hunter or angler perspective, I definitely would point you towards that document that Land mentioned, and you can find that on the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers website. That is backcountryhunters.org. The TRCP, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, has also been putting out some information on this issue. You can find info at trcp.org for that as well. Both of these organizations and many others are doing good work to help protect our public lands and waters and wildlife. So as I've done many times before, I will just you know, kind of urge you and encourage you to, uh, to learn more about these things, to stay involved, to stand up for these places, for our wildlife, for our ability to hunt and fish. Um, we need these places. We need these protections. We need public lands. So uh, let's do that together. And uh, finally, I guess I will just offer a few more simple things. Um, number one, if you've left a rating or review for the podcast, just want to give you a big, big thanks. There are, I think, over 1,200 five-star reviews now. That's incredible. We appreciate that. I uh, also want to give a big thank you to our partners who help keep this podcast possible. So big thanks to Matthews Archery, Sitka Gear, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, Yeti Coolers, and Huntera Maps. And of course, and maybe most importantly, we couldn't do any of this without you guys, the listeners. So thank you so much. I hope you're still hitting those tree stands, getting in the woods, enjoying some late season hunts. And if you are, I wish you luck. Until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They're warm, breathable, silent, and odor-resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years, uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, All of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at firstlite.com.